Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Wednesday on the Three Martini Lunch, and we are certainly glad that you are here. We're brought to you today by a brand new sponsor, CarShield. Right now, for as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and potentially save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention the code MARTINI or visit carshield.com and use the code MARTINI to save 10%. We have good, good, and crazy martinis today. Both of our good martinis, Jim, are people we don't like very much getting a comeuppance. Um, The name, unless you're on social media and really into politics, which many of our listeners are, of course, the name Rick Wilson probably won't ring a lot of bells. But if you follow politics closely, it will. He is the head of the Lincoln Project, perhaps the worst named organization ever. The Lincoln Project is a bunch of disgruntled former Republican political operatives who went hardcore anti-Trump in 2016, largely got behind the ever so successful Evan McMullen for president movement. And this time they didn't decide to go third party. They just decided to go all in for the Democrats. So they're endorsing Joe Biden. And it's not just getting rid of Trump. They have to get rid of all of Trump's quote unquote enablers. So all Republicans in Congress have to go too. These are the true Republicans, Jim. These are the real, true and tried conservatives. And uh, of course, it's, uh, it's a complete farce. It's mainly a giant grifting operation. And finally, that's been exposed to a large degree, but not by who you would think. Rick Wilson uh, was on Stephen Colbert's parody news show, Tuning Out the News. He thought he was going on there to talk about all these viral internet ads that they're throwing out there savaging President Trump. Personally, I think most of them look like they came from a seventh grade mind, and sometimes the the production value is about the same caliber. But they are getting some traction, and they're raising some money here. So we have two clips from this interview. And keep in mind that tuning out the news is cartoon anchors interviewing actual people. And so this is where they're talking about the money the Lincoln Project has raised and how it's actually being spent. Let's talk about how the Lincoln Project spends all those Maddow viewers' money. Here is how much three other top liberal super PACs spend on operating expenditures compared to total disbursements. In other words, the percentage spent on overhead costs, including salaries over their lifetime. Senate Majority PAC spends 16.8% on overhead. Unite the Country is 14.75%, and American Bridge 21st Century is 46.7%. What do you think the percentage is for the Lincoln Project? Well, you're going to see our new report coming out in July, which represents our, our first, uh, the first major uh, uh, period in our campaign that wasn't involved in startup costs and acquisition costs and data, and data costs. And you're going to see that we are, we are putting about 85 cents of every dollar into voter contact. 85% with 15% going to overhead would be a lot better because right now it's the opposite. 11% goes to independent expenditures and 89% goes to overhead. 89.3% on overhead sounds like a lot, but I can't get into the right headspace to make a 10-second ad without wolfing down endangered mollusks in a titanium catamaran with my Bush administration buddies. And so, Jim, I'm, I'm just sure that those numbers are going to turn around like Rick Wilson said, but... My favorite part here, and there's plenty of other parts in this. You can find it on Mediaite. There's the part also where they hammer Rick Wilson for using foul language in his tweets, which is especially rich right now because they've now dismissed two staff members for old tweets that were demeaning to other people, but not Rick Wilson, who's probably got a greater catalog than anyone on Twitter. 
but this one is tuning out the news, deciding to make their own ad about the Lincoln Project. Listen to this. All right, well, given all this, we had our media arm, which is me and I'm expensive, make a new Lincoln Project ad. Take a look president at this. Trump is the most incompetent, corrupt president in history, and we need to do everything we can to stop him after compensating our strategists complicit in the deaths of countless innocent lives and paying for overhead such as lodging at the W Hotel and the Standard, both of which have fantastic roof decks. Stop this corrupt grifter ruining America. Donate to these savvy grifters who ruined it before and hope you don't look into them. So, Jim... Is this going to change much in the 2020 presidential election or in the Senate elections? Probably not. But to watch the Lincoln Project get called out for exactly what they are was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, Greg, a couple, probably about a week or so ago, I wrote a piece for the uh, UK publication, The Article, kind of pointing out that for most of its efforts, the part of the Lincoln Project, uh, when they run their TV ads, they're doing this, uh, they're targeting an audience of one. They run them in the DC market. Uh, Maryland is not competitive this year. The District of Columbia is never competitive. Virginia is not expected to be competitive. And the signal doesn't reach into Pennsylvania or North Carolina. So you're like, why would you waste money on ads in the DC market? Well, because the Lincoln Project wants the president to see it and to get mad and to put out these furious tweets denouncing them. Because then when that happens, a whole bunch of liberals say, oh my goodness, these, these guys are angering the president. They must be swell guys. And they write their checks out to them. And money is flowing into this. And lo and behold, significant amounts of what the Lincoln Project does is overhead and other spending that goes back into the pockets of these former Republican political consultants. Now, on a pure, you know, audaciousness level, maybe you can admire the fact that a bunch of guys who up until the Trump era were not admired by liberals and progressives and the grassroots of the Democratic Party at all who have managed to reinvent themselves and who I guess you could say there's a certain amount of fleecing going on of liberal donors. And I guess there are folks on the right who would say good for that. But there is something um, bizarre and unnerving about the way Rick Wilson can pose as some sort of uh, you know, principal defender, the way the, they're insisting the conservative thing to do is to not just vote against Trump, but to vote for the Democrats in all races up and down the ballot. And then the second thing is, like, I, there are a lot of things about Wilson's arguments that irk me. I think the single most glaring one is how often he will denounce the president for coarsening our culture. And then he will denounce the president and his voters in ways that uh, are pretty darn coarse and obnoxious and insulting. And uh, I think we can all remember the time him joking around with Don Lemon, making fun of Trump voters as being ignorant backward hicks and stuff like that. You know, the, this thing is, so I, when, when this, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, good. All right. Hey, Rick Wilson, you got to come and, you know, that's fair. Greg, I don't know about you. The longer that segment went on, I almost, it started to get almost uncomfortable that Rick Wilson just stepped into a bear trap that the Colbert writers had set up for him because they'd done their homework and they just tore him limb to limb. And you almost got to the point where you're like, stop, stop. It's over. Throw in the towel, Rick, you know. I almost wanted to see Rick Wilson storm off the set and recognize that he was getting, you know, had walked into an ambush of people pointing out, I think, a very fair criticism. Here's like, oh, I, you know, as a person who still thinks very highly of George W. Bush, I don't like this argument that George W. Bush and Donald Trump are indistinguishable, which is one of the, the kind of, you know, arguments from the Colbert team in that one. Um, by the way, also, Greg, is it just me or is that clearly is meant to be Morning Joe? It's meant to be Mika and Joe Scarborough and Peggy Noonan. And I think I want to say like maybe Howard Feynman on, the, on that last one. Yeah, I don't know exactly who they the others were. But yeah, that was clearly a Morning Joe style setup. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so, I, you know, maybe Rick Wilson thought it was going to be like the real Joe and Mika or something. But it was, <laughs> it was one of those things where, you know, I, I rarely have you seen somebody sit through an interview, a, you know, interview. I should, people can't see me making you know, air quotes as I do this. Um, that so clearly was just, you know, an absolute ambush from start to finish and just dismantles him. And you can, that, that interview gets more and more uncomfortable. Because Wilson clearly thought, because it's Colbert prediction, he was saying, "Hey, we're on, we're all on the same team now. You know, we all hate Trump." And um, the Colbert writers did not get that memo and just decided to rip apart Wilson in a way that I think even some Trump fans might have particularly enjoyed. No, definitely the case. I mean, they still said at the end that they want Trump to lose, but uh, they definitely see the hypocrisy here and. The Lincoln Project, they were anti-Trump from the get-go. I think Rick Wilson was with the Rubio campaign, at least for a while in 2016. Uh, and then they went McMullen, and then they lost their minds, uh, literally, from the moment that Trump won the 2016 election. And it's been uh, pretty much a giant grift ever since. I don't know where they're going to go for money once Trump is out of office, whether it's uh, in a few months or a few years. But uh, I don't think they're going to be welcomed with open arms on the left for the reasons we saw here, because of their long pedigree with Republican candidates, and they're certainly not going to be welcomed back by Republicans. So maybe Greg, a let, me, let me jump in and say something that's probably unfair here. And everyone leans forward to their speakers as I say that. So Rick Wilson's getting up there. He's been a, a, a consultant for a very long time. Most of the consultants involved with the Lincoln Project have been around for a long time. They've been through a whole bunch of radios, a bunch of MSNBC contracts. So maybe this is it. Maybe this is the last rodeo for these guys. Maybe they're not, you know, here's the thing. You notice you don't see a lot of young, up-and-coming Republican campaign consultants jumping onto this. I think these guys <laughs> recognize that once Trump won, their career in Republican politics, even for down-ticket ballots, was, was gone. And so this was the avenue that was, uh, was available to them, and they're deciding to chase it. And they're, giving, they're separating a whole bunch of progressive grassroots from their dollars. So I guess you can kind of say, wow, you know, they really got a pair of brass ones on them. But, uh, you know, I also kind of wonder, though, like, the, the argument in one of the articles from, uh, uh, I think it was Re uh, Galen who'd said that, you know, well, what we're doing is we're throwing the president off his game. Greg, does this seem like a president who'd be on his game if it wasn't for these ads from the Lincoln Project? <laughs> yeah, Trump was a very even-keeled guy until we ran that ad, and then we threw, oh, that, that put him in a, in a, tire, in a, in a rage. Yeah, okay. All yeah, right. yeah. Remember 2016 where Rubio had that two or three-day stretch where he tried to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump with the insults? I don't yeah. know if that was Rick Wilson's idea, but if you're trying to knock Trump off his game by getting under his skin, that's where Trump excels. So the more you do that, the more, uh, the more he's going to be on his game, I would say. Uh, you know, the other thing is in my article for the article, which I realize how ridiculous that sounds, uh, in my piece <laughs> for the article, Greg, I'd note that you know, getting Trump angry and getting him to go on a Twitter tirade is like watching a 6'2 man dunk on a kindergartner playing basketball. <laughs> Not yeah, hard. okay. Good job, pal. It was real tough. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about our great brand new sponsor here, CarShield. Uh, and it's a great way to make sure that you don't get hit with those unexpected auto repair bills. Look, computer systems in cars are the new normal. If you've bought a car in the last few years, you definitely know that. I know that. And I'll explain why I know that in just a moment. From electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost a fortune and now is not the time for expensive repairs. Uh, spring of last year, our old minivan was about nine years old, I think. We were 
down in South Carolina for a wedding, coming back, fortunately, almost all the way home. And all of a sudden, the check engine light comes on and it's blinking, which I found out in the manual means something's really wrong. So we're, we got it home and the next day took it into the shop. They said, oh, you got a couple of blown cylinders and that's going to cost you about five grand. Well, when a car's about 10 years old, dumping five grand into it is not the uh, way to go. And if I had had CarShield, it would have made a huge difference. Thankfully, now I've got the, uh, the warranty on the new car, but uh, it would have been a whole lot less painful last year if uh, I had had something like CarShield in place. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. The people at CarShield understand that payment flexibility is an absolute must these days. Monthly plans can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 per month. No long-term contracts or commitments. And CarShield gives you options that other companies won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while your car is being fixed. CarShield has helped more than 1 million customers, so drive with confidence knowing you got coverage from America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 per month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention the code MARTINI or visit carshield.com and use the code MARTINI to save 10%. That's carshield.com, code MARTINI. A deductible may apply. All right, Jim, let's move to our second good martini now. And both of our good martinis, let's be honest, this is kind of like the schadenfreude edition of the three martini lunch. But hey, yesterday we talked about Andrew Cuomo and his poster about how awesome he is. And we've also spent a lot of time in the last couple of days just pounding the media, and rightly so, for coddling Andrew Cuomo and for a myriad other reasons why the media has just completely lost all objectivity, what the Barry Weiss story as well. But kudos to Jake Tapper, who has not been the most objective guy lately, but as it comes to the Andrew Cuomo story, he definitely was yesterday. Jake Tapper, not impressed with the Cuomo poster. New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, seems to be on something of a victory tour, congratulating the state and himself for defeating the virus, even selling this poster, which shows his state getting over the mountain by bringing down the curve during the 111 days of hell, as the governor put it. The poster includes references to his daughters and a boyfriend, little inside jokes. There are no illustrations, however, of the more than 32,000 dead New Yorkers, the highest death toll by far of any state. No rendering on that poster of criticism that Governor Cuomo ignored warnings, no depiction of the study that he could have saved thousands of lives had he and Mayor de Blasio acted sooner. No painting there on the poster of his since rescinded order that nursing homes take all infected patients in. So the fact that even some on the left, uh, Jim, I think CNN can be classified certainly as the left, see how ridiculous this is, is a good thing. Yeah, I was thinking about what I, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier in the week, Greg. And look, to run for office, you have to have a healthy ego. There is, you know, you're not going to find a lot of shy, uh, you know, self-critical types ending up in public office. They have to be the kind of people who love to see their faces on billboards and ads that say, you know, John Jones is just terrific in every possible way, you know. Um, and I think that one of the duties of the media is to act as a check on any inherent narcissism at work in public officials. Doesn't mean you can never praise them, doesn't mean you can never say good job when they deserve it, but 
politicians are always going to see themselves in the best possible light. In a lot of cases, their idea of accountability is going to be what Andrew Cuomo and Phil Murphy have done, which both of them have done, issued their own administration, within their own uh, state administration. They've done their reviews of their nursing home policies. And Greg, I know this is going to shock you, but it turns out that both Andrew Cuomo and Phil Murphy believe that their administrations made all the right decisions during, regarding nursing homes in this entire pandemic. Go, go figure, the internal review did not find any, uh, any wrongdoing. This is what happens if the media falls down on its job and is not willing to be in that adversarial role that I think is necessary for a functioning constitutional republic. You can't be a cheerleader. You can't be someone who falls in love with a particular politician. And when you don't do this and you see the stuff, like not just with you know Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo doing the prop comedy, but just the overall hosannas that have gone towards Andrew Cuomo, you get this poster. Basically, politicians get high on their own supply. They become so utterly convinced that all of the praise that they encounter um, is representative of everybody's viewpoint that they tune out any criticism that does get through their bubble. And they walk around in this like near, um, just, just psychological denial of what reality was going on around them. And you find this in both parties, but I think it's pretty clear that the media, uh, which is generally more supportive of Democrats and generally friendlier, friendlier to Democrats, what we're seeing here in New York is you know, Cuomo genuinely believing this. So good job, Jake Tapper. I've not always been uh, uh, liked with how you've approached things lately, but this is a very necessary corrective and seeing it on, on CNN, the employer of Chris Cuomo, uh, is much appreciated at this time place. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And this is more than just the news of the day. This is really the news of the last four years. The bizarre saga of Jeff Sessions. In early 2016, Jeff Sessions became the first senator to endorse then-candidate Donald Trump. And a lot of people thought that that helped him do better than expected in the South. Remember, the South was supposed to be where Ted Cruz was supposed to pile up the delegates for the nomination. Instead, Trump won down there, and, and Sessions at least played a role in that. He was then tapped to be Trump's attorney general, got through a contentious confirmation process. But then right after the Comey firing in May of 2017, uh, Sessions decided to recuse himself, and therefore Rod Rosenstein was put in charge of the Russia investigation. That's how he got the Mueller probe. And at that point, Trump despised Jeff Sessions and the rest of their relationship for the next year and a half was nothing short of a uh, dysfunctional disaster for the most part. Uh, Sessions left after the midterms. Then we got Bill Barr. Jeff Sessions decided to run for his old Senate seat. Uh, Doug Jones, of course, had beaten Roy Moore when Sessions vacated the seat in 2017. And so he didn't want Moore to get it. Tommy Tuberville, the former Auburn football coach, was in the race. Tuberville and Sessions advanced to the runoff since nobody got to 50% in the original primary. Then Trump weighs in with both feet in favor of Tuberville, even though Sessions was running to be an ally once again of President Trump. In the runoff on Tuesday, last night, Tuberville wins easily. Uh, and Trump, of course, crows. Wow, just called. Tommy Tuberville won big against. Jeff Sessions will be a great senator for the incredible people of Alabama. To his credit, Sessions bowing out gracefully last night. But uh, Jim, as you pointed out, this is a guy that a lot of people three and a half years ago thought had actually worked the system perfectly to have a huge impact as the attorney general on his way out of public life. And it turned into something far more weird. Yeah, I'm sure you can find a couple examples of a rapid rise and a rapid fall. Um, Mooch comes to mind. <laughs> That's really rapid, yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you think about Jeff Sessions heading into the 2016 cycle, uh, you know, he, he, was been a, he had been a senator for a long time. He 
was was a reasonably respected by his Republican colleagues, but I don't think you'd say he was, you know, a, a, a enormously well-known nationwide. Uh, he was seen as tough on immigration, both illegal and legal, and that he's, his endorsement was one that several senators had wanted. I think it's safe to say Ted Cruz really wanted this. And alone among Senate Republicans, Jeff Sessions looked at the field and said, you know what, I'm going to go with Trump. And a lot of people seem to think, you know, Sessions was, was either making a mistake or out of his mind or it just, it just did not, you know, everybody else looked at Trump and saw this guy who was erratic and, uh, uh, you know, completely unpresidential, unqualified for the job and, and had no chance of beating Hillary Clinton, you know, no chance of getting the nomination. What, you know, he looked like he was running for, he wanted his own TV channel, TV channel. What was Jeff Sessions doing? Well, lo and behold, Jeff Sessions, you know, endorses Trump, shows up at the rally, puts on the Make America Great hat again, disappoints the Ted Cruz campaign, and lo and behold, Trump wins the nomination, and then Trump wins the presidency. And all of a sudden, Jeff Sessions, starting on election night 2016, Jeff Sessions starts looking like a really smart guy, a Machiavellian guy who'd figured out that uh, Trump was, had, could win when, you know, other candidates couldn't, and that by being his, his, really his only true Washington establishment figure, who had endorsed him, that Jeff Sessions was in, was in great position to have enormous influence in this administration. And lo and behold, he gets nominated and is eventually confirmed, very tough party line vote, to be attorney general. Right? This is going to be the capstone of Jeff Sessions' career. And I think probably on the day of the confirmation vote, that probably was the apex of Jeff Sessions' career <laughs> because it was all downhill. Yes, we've seen presidents have disagreements with attorney generals before. We have not seen a president take to Twitter and mock and belittle and humiliate his attorney general like that. Clearly, it's, it's tumultuous years. It does not go the way Jeff Sessions expected. I, I you know, the moment you mention this, some people start screaming that Sessions either shouldn't have recused himself or he should have told the president that he was going to recuse himself. Um, as I wrote today, Jeff Sessions was convinced, A, that he knew Donald Trump well. He did not. He was convinced that he could influence Donald Trump. I don't think that necessarily was the case. And he was also convinced that if he made a decision that Donald Trump did not like, that the Donald would understand. He bet wrong on that one. So he ends up, you know, uh, reti you know uh, stepping down as attorney general, and he decides, you know what, I don't want this to be my last act in public life. I'm going to run for my old Senate seat. Now, I was not overjoyed to hear this. I kind of felt like the state needed some new blood. Um, and now we have, you know, it turns out not only did Sessions lose the primary, he lost about 60-40. It wasn't all that close. Right. Now, some of this was the I, I, It's very hard to believe that if Sessions and Trump had not ended on bad terms, that this primary would have not shaken out the way it did. And so you saw the farewell speech, the, the, you know, the, the concession speech from Jeff Sessions last night. It's probably the last time most of us are going to see Jeff Sessions uh, in public life. I, it's hard to see him running again. I don't think he's got, you know, this is it. And so the last few chapters of the Jeff Sessions story, very up and down, uh, like Icarus, flew too close to the sun. You know, things were looking terrific at the beginning of the Trump administration. And now he's a guy who it's time to ride off into the sunset and he's not uh, ending his career on his terms.
So it's Tuberville against Doug Jones, and Sessions was pretty tough. I mean, of course, you're going to be in a primary campaign against Tuberville, and he thinks there's going to be vulnerabilities for Tuberville in a seat that should be a gimme for Republicans to pick up, starting with the fact that Tuberville doesn't actually live in Alabama. He actually lives in Florida, but I don't know, maybe he's got some sort of residence there. He's uh, recruiting. He's recruiting. There's a lot of good players down there. That's, that's right. And then there's some sort of uh, ethical situation that he was uh, somehow connected to, but he was never charged with anything. So I'm sure that the Democrats will, will bring that up, but uh, I would assume Tuberville's ready for that since he dealt with it in the primary. But uh, as long as you don't have Roy Moore type allegations somewhere back in your past there, Tommy Tuberville, you should still be the strong favorite, I think. Yeah. And that's a bar so low, it's effectively a tripwire. Um, <laughs> the, the, the only other thing I would also point out is so far it appears the Alabama Democrats are really going after Tuberville on his record as a college football coach. It'll be, maybe that moves people in a way that the other policy arguments won't. We're going to see how this shakes out, but uh, Intriguing, to say the least, that uh, they, they, maybe they recognize it in a state like Alabama, you know, saying he's a conservative is just not going get to get you to victory. So, uh, no. you know, maybe, that, maybe that's the best strategy they've got. He did win a lot against Alabama. So that's, uh, that's going to be an issue for at least some Roll Tide fans. But uh, something tells me, given that uh, the way that the Alabama vote generally breaks down, there's some crossover there. So we'll see if that happens this time. Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please check out our sponsor, carshield.com, and use the code martini or call 800-CAR-6000 and mention the code martini for 10% off. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.